Good morning. Um, you know, the Bible and just our Lord himself is full of truth. Some of you are probably here today wanting to hear truth, and you will hear it. You're asking what is true, and we find that in the scriptures. Others, others, others of you have come, and you're asking what is real. I want to hear something real and feel something real. Well, you're going to feel that and hear that this morning, too. Others of you may be asking, what is good? Is there really any good in Christianity? Is there any good in the Bible? You're going to hear some things that are really good. And then still others of you are mainly asking, what is beautiful? In a world that is broken, in a world where we see so much suffering and pandemic and war, what is beautiful? You're going to find some things that are beautiful here today as well. I'll tell you that uh, as we look to this this morning, the Bible tells us what is true and what is real and what is good and what is beautiful, and it doesn't avoid hard topics, topics like slavery. Now, there's a lot of pastors that would sidestep the question of slavery in this passage and just go straight to employer-employee relationships. But I'm here to tell you today that it's not exactly analogous what's going on in 60 AD with slave-master relationships and what you're experiencing at work right now. Now, there are definitely applications that we can make, and we're going to go there. But we're going to stop after the first four, four verses, which say, bond servants, or in many translations, slaves obey your masters. In a context like we've experienced in our country and in many countries, we have to answer this question and understand what that means. Why? Well, writers like Evan McCauley in his book, Reading While Black, and Shai Lin from his book, The New Reformation, are right when they point out to us that slavery in the Bible is one of the most confusing topics that there is out there and actually is one of the topics because it's in the Bible and some believe the Bible even endorses slavery. It's a reason why people believe that Christianity is not for the poor and it's not for minorities. That's absolutely and totally untrue. We need to address that. But it's a reason why people believe that there's been a whitewashing of Christianity, that really it's a white man's religion now, obviously, historically, if you go back to the, the context of Christianity, that's, that's impossible. But in America, with what we've experienced in our country, we need to answer that question. So we're going to stop after those first four words, slaves obey your masters. And as we get going into that, I'm going to go ahead and acknowledge a real danger here in America. And it's an unfortunate one. We've got to address it. When we talk about slavery we immediately think of racism, and we've been trained when we think of racism to immediately think of politics instead of people. And so I'm going to go ahead and call us out on that right now, that I'm going, to, I'm going to try to do what we can to stay out of the political frame and just deal with it on a personal frame. Yes, there are absolutely applications to be made in 2022 in American politics, but you know that Paul wasn't primarily writing about that, was he? No way. So there's a whole lot of other applications that we can make here. And so to, to kind of help us do that, I'm going to tell a story. There was a recent politician, uh, he or she was on the campaign trail, and she came upon a, a group of protesters, very motivated about racial injustice. They were mostly minorities. They were passionate about racism and what it had done in their own personal lives. And this candidate went up to them and said, I hear what you're saying, I've got you, but you're never going to make a difference if you don't change the system, if you don't change the laws. So join me, make me your candidate, your politician, and we'll really do something. 
And one by one, each and every one of these young people, these young protesters walked away from this candidate. Why? Because the candidate made something that was personal for them, that they had experienced personally, they immediately made it political. They treated them like voters instead of like people. And we often do this in the church as well. People come to us and they're like, look, I've, I've got a problem. I'm a, I'm a minority. I've got an experience that I want to tell you about. And we tell them, you know what we're going to do? We're going to form a committee for you. We're going to write a paper up on your experience. Maybe it's a woman that comes to the church and they're like, look, I've had an experience as a woman in the church I want to tell you about. And they're like, that's nice. You know what we'll do? We'll have a series of meetings and we'll write a white paper about it. And I'm telling you that's wrong. And we've done that at our church. I'm telling you that that's wrong. That's not how people are supposed to be treated. And so when we start talking about slavery here, we start talking about it in the, 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 the context that Paul was in and also in the United States, I want to caution you against treating people like potential voters. This, in this room, and if you're watching online, if you're a Christian, you are a brother and sister in Christ. You're not a potential voter. You're not a Republican or a Democrat. You are a Christian. You are a brother or sister in Christ. And so in Christ, one of the most beautiful things about following a new master is it levels the playing field. It's a beautiful thing that God is doing. It's an upside-down kingdom where God is creating a beautiful community out of all of us. No matter where we have come from, we can find freedom under the leadership of a new master. So we're going to jump in right there with slaves obey your masters. First of all, we're going to talk about how having a new master confronts the institution of slavery. So right off the bat, let's answer the question, why does Paul just not condemn slavery outright here? Well, if Paul was writing to us in a modern-day context, I actually believe that he would. But he's writing a letter to a little tiny house church in Ephesus. And so for him to outright condemn the institution of slavery, which William Barclay says there were at least 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, it actually wouldn't have done any good. It would have been pointless to outlaw slavery. In fact, some of the people that he's writing to were slaves, and they actually depended on this institution at the time for their livelihood and for their income. And so that would have not been the best way to go. It's also important to understand that in that day, slaves' responsibilities would have ranged from agrarian work, cleaning latrines, sweeping streets, which we might normally think of slaves' work, to jobs which were comparatively noble, like managing finances, running households, legal, medical work. So in many cases in the Roman world, I mean, sl slavery was a very diverse institution that impacted everything within the Roman world. So instead of outlawing slavery, Paul undermines it at its core, and let me show you how. Yes, he starts with, slaves obey your masters, but you want to go down to verse 9, where then the master is told to remember that both his slave or his servant, however you want to translate it, and he have the same master. You both have the same master. And with that master, that new master in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, there is no partiality. And so the, so the slave is supposed to obey the master. The master also has a calling to remember that his slave, and actually this is pointed out in Philemon with Onesimus and Philemon. Onesimus was the slave and Philemon was the master. What does Paul say to him? If you go there to Philemon 16, he says, I'm sending you back, not a slave, but a brother. 
I'm sending you back a brother. And so Paul undermines the institution of slavery at its core by telling masters that you're on the exact same level as the slave, and in my economy, you're under my mastership, and I treat you both equally with no partiality. And so Paul gives this revolutionary theology that raises up all parties or lowers some down and creates co-equals. You see this actually in the Christmas song, O Holy Night. There's a, there's a verse where it says, Chains he shall break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. It's a beautiful word. So Christianity, one of those beautiful things about serving a new master is we're all level. We're all on the same playing field, the playing field of grace. So what were the differences between Roman slavery and the antebellum or chattel slavery that exists in the United States from 18, till 1865 and then was perpetuated through Reconstruction and Jim Crow. It's important to understand the difference. So Roman slavery was very different than American slavery. Within the Roman system, at a predetermined time, slaves would work off their debt, much like the Hebrew system in the Old Testament. Slaves could then either elect to go free or start their own life, or they could elect to pledge themselves to their master for the rest of their lives. So one respected historian says that the change from slave to free, or manumission, uh, was both constant and easy. And in a 30-year period, we know of at least 500,000 slaves that were freed from their masters through the regular practices of the Roman system. So if a slave decided not to go free, at the end of his period of slavery, uh, he would then become what's called a doulos or a bond servant. And he would have a, pe a wooden peg driven through his ear as a sign that he was his master's. And then that master was supposed to treat him because he pledged himself to that master lifelong. He was supposed to treat that slave with an, even an extra measure of human dignity and respect. Slaves in the Roman system could be married they could have children, they could become heirs, they could own property. And though it would be um, definitely fallacious to say that there were no slaves that were not mistreated in the Roman system because there were, when compared to the American institution of slavery, it really was a different system. Now to American slavery. American slavery is one of the few slavery systems in the world which was entirely predicated on the basis of race. In the Roman system, you weren't a slave based on the color of your skin. And, and in primarily, you weren't a slave because you were enslaved and captured and brought away from your homeland. You were either born into slavery or you found yourself in a financial position that was not desirable and so you became a slave to someone. But it was not based on race. In the Roman system, there were all kinds of races that were slaves. But in the American system, it was primarily black, central, and western African. And so the American system of slavery was almost entirely black in terms of who the slaves were. And so inherent within the American system of slavery was racism. That's not the same. That's not the same as the Roman system. The slaves had no pathway to freedom, to building wealth, or to building or keeping a family. In, Amer in the American slavery system, racism and slavery were inseparable from one another. That's a major difference. So does the Bible then encourage slavery? Really important to answer this question. 
The answer to that is no. It does not encourage slavery, and I'll tell you why. The Bible very clearly teaches that the enslavement of persons is a wicked sin. In 1 Timothy 1.10, this sin of being an enslaver is mentioned as an application of the Eighth Commandment, do not steal, with the stealing of persons being the worst thing you can steal. And, and we're told in 1 Timothy 1.10 that enslavers are living contrary to the sound doctrine and are out of accord with the glory of the blessed God. They are called vile, ungodly, and profane, and in need of the law of God to straighten out their wickedness. That's in 1 Timothy 1.10. You can read it. What law is Paul referring to from the Old Testament? Well, he's referring back to Exodus 21. You know, I, we're, some of us are reading through the Bible right now. I just read through Exodus. And it struck me when I was reading through that, that Moses, when he's on Mount Sinai, he's only there for like four chapters. But when he's there, one of the things that God points out to him is, a, is laws about slaves. And one of those laws in verse 16 is this. Whoever, this is from God on Mount Sinai. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. That's really clear. So how we got to the point in America that there were Christian slave owners is, is, is deeply appalling, and it's, it's deeply unsettling. It's extremely confusing. What do we say about this? I don't know every Christian slave owner. I, I'm not here to tell you were they Christians or not. I believe some of them were, but we have to absolutely say that if they were, they had a massive, huge, gaping blind spot. They, they, did, they totally discounted and misread their Bibles. And the fact that they didn't just own slaves, but they used the Bible to back up and support slavery, the slavery of the kind that we saw in America, it truly is reprehensible. And we need to say that out loud. Here we are, it's 157 years after 1865, and in America... To say something like that still carries weight. It's evil. And it's still the downstream flow of racism that flowed through slavery, through Reconstruction, through Jim Crow, and still impacts us today is absolutely tragic. And so as a Christian first, as a pastor, as a pastor of this church, a church and a person who loves the poor and minorities, I will say American slavery and Jim Crow were racist and evil, and we need to do everything we can to get rid of the downstream flow of all of that in our national history. Russell Moore said this. He said, to be a racist is a denial of both creation and recreation. Racism is a sin that leads people away from God, and when it's found in the church, it leads people to hell. Those are big words. It's a denial of both creation and recreation. So how are we responding today to slavery in our history and the racism that has flowed downstream in the USA and even in our denomination, the PCA. So the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, which we're a part of, uh, in 2002 and then most recently in 2016, formally repented at a general assembly level for the racism in our own denomination's history. Olivia and I were there during this general assembly where we wrote these words and, and voted as a denomination to, to own them. It says, we recognize, confess, condemn, and repent of corporate and historical sins, including those committed during the civil rights era, 
and continuing racial sins of ourselves and our fathers, such as the segregation of worshipers by race, the exclusion of persons from church membership on the basis of race, the exclusion of churches or elders from membership and the presbyteries on the basis of race. And we recognize, confess, condemn, and repent of past failures to love our brothers and sisters from minority cultures in accordance with what the gospel requires, as well as failures to lovingly confront our brothers and sisters concerning racial sins and personal bigotry. We recommit ourselves to the gospel task of racial reconciliation, diligently seeking effective courses of action to further that goal with humility, sincerity, and zeal for the glory of God and the furtherance of the gospel. And be it further resolved that the General Assembly urges congregations and presbyteries in the PCA to make this resolution known to their members in order that they may prayerfully confess their own racial sins as led by the Holy Spirit and strive towards racial reconciliation for the advancement of the gospel. That's a great statement. That's good. It's a little bit too long in coming, 2016. It took a long time to get there, and we have to get our words just right um, in the PCA. But, but we got there. And so at Trinity Park, how are we continuing to move forward in this to address the sin of racism? And also modern-day slavery, by the way. There's 46 million slaves today, um, and slavery is still a reality in many countries. I think it's like 94 countries um, most recently when it was studied. How are we approaching this at Trinity Park? Well, first of all, we're having honest conversations where we're, trying to, we're just trying to listen to each other. One of the best questions that you can learn to ask when someone starts talking about race or what it feels like to be a minority or a woman uh, in the church or something of, of this nature is instead of trying to change the subject and try to, try to get out of the conversation, here's a question you can learn to ask. I also coach people on the side. This is one of my favorite questions to ask. It's called the awe question, A-W-E. And what else? Uh, tell me more. Don't stop. Don't stop the conversation. Just let them keep talking. And you know what you can do? You can listen and you can learn. You can listen and you can learn. Learn to ask the awe question. We are also actively seeking to include every single type of person created in God's image and, and recreated by the Holy Spirit. We are seeking to, to not just include them in our membership, but in our leadership. You know, Jesus was a Middle Eastern Jewish carpenter. Our church is led by a minority person in our view of minorities in America. And so we should include as many minorities as we possibly can who are qualified for office. And we're, gonna, we're actively doing that in every way. Team leaders, community group leaders, everything, man. It, it doesn't matter if you're white, black, Asian, Latino, man, we want to see you serving in your gifts at our church. Erwin Entz said this in his book, The Beautiful Community. He said, the cherry on top of the history of redemption is the healing of a terribly fractured humanity in Christ for the glory of God. And so may we continue to see the healing of humanity at Trinity Park. We're also partnering with IJM to try to end modern-day slavery, international justice mission. So that's the first point. How do we respond to the slaves obey your masters? First of all, serving a new master challenges, it undermines, it confronts the institution of slavery. Second of all, serving a new master transforms the way we work. It transforms the way we work. 
And by the way, if you're, if you're nervous, if you feel like I'm, I'm uh, only talking about one side of what's going on in America, you can wait and I'll, I'll get to some of the other things that are going on in our country a little bit later. Serving a new master transforms the way we work. Fear and trembling, it says in verse 5. We're supposed to serve with fear and trembling. How do we do that? What does that mean? It doesn't mean as we work that we, we serve our boss or our employer. It doesn't mean that we serve them actually as if we're afraid of them. As we serve the Lord, we, we stand in awe of God and respect God, and we know that everything we do at work reflects on God's holy character. Um, also, it says we're supposed to serve in verse 6 at work with a sincere heart in everything that we do. We're not supposed to do it as people pleasers, that we're just doing the, the better work when the boss is around. We do it as bond servants of Christ. Now, this terminology, bond servants of Christ, in verse 6 is important. Understanding this word. So this word in verse 6 uh, is doulos. And this concept of a doulos, it goes back to what I was explaining earlier. It goes back to when we learned that when a slave reached his point where he could go free, if he pledged himself for his whole life to his master, then he would receive this peg in his ear and he would be part of the family household. Well, this same idea of a bond servant of Christ is what's going on here. One of the best ways you can understand what your relationship is to Christ is that you are now his bondservant. You're now his slave, so to speak. But you're, you're the, the bondservant of a new master. And you pledge yourself to him for your whole life, and he pledges himself to you to lead you in all that you do. But as a bondservant, if you're a bondservant of the master back in ancient Rome and then also today, everything you do, people know that you are the servant of a certain master. You're the servant of the great king, and so everything we do reflects on God's character. And everything we do, we represent our Lord as servants in the world. And so whether we're working, this is incredible, as a, if, you're, if you're the employee, you're working with all your heart. You're trying to do everything you can, yes, to do a good job, but also to please the Lord. And that's incredible. If you're an employer and you have an employee that's working like this, they're going to do really good work. But also as an employer, as you oversee what's going on, as you oversee the whole company, as you oversee your employees, you're also working with all your heart, seeking to serve the Lord. And so it should be great to have a boss who is seeking to serve the Lord because he's going to treat you with dignity. So Christians that are parts of companies, it should make those companies better companies because your, your motivation for work goes far beyond what you make, even though everybody's motivated, they want to make some money, that's good, but it goes far beyond that. It goes far beyond pleasing your boss. It goes to pleasing the Lord. So if you're an employee or an employer, you should be doing better work than the average person. And in verse 7 and 8, it says, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, not to man, and knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive this back from the Lord, whether he is bondservant or is free. And so the idea here is that not only do you have a new CEO, I mean, really a new master, a new Lord, but the reward system has changed. So now the rewards you're looking for, it's not necessarily finances or more time off. I mean, I understand all that, but really the greater motivation is that you know that one day you're going to stand before the Lord and he is going to reward you for what you've done. He's going to return to you for what you've done. And that's a very motivating thought as we approach everything in life. I want to make sure as we get into rewards, though, that we don't think of uh, 
we're, we're, we're not working so that God will give us his grace. So that's a totally different, that's a totally different thing. Grace is not a reward. Okay, grace is a gift. Gifts are not earned. Gifts are given freely. So our grace that God gives us is free. So you're a Christian and, and your life is secure in the gospel. But as your life is secure in the gospel and as you serve the Lord, there are other rewards that God gives to his people uh, that are up to the Lord that are not uh, that flow from grace and, and are manifestations of grace, but they are not the grace of God that comes to us in the gospel itself. I read this quote from Charles Spurgeon this week. He said, did anybody dream of supervising Raphael or Michelangelo to keep them at their work? No, the master artist requires no eyes to urge him on. Popes and emperors came to visit the great painters in their studios, but did they paint better because the grandees gazed upon them? Certainly not. Perhaps they did all the worse in their excitement and worry of the visit. They had regard to something better than pompous people. <laughs> I love that. And so these guys, why did they do such great work? They were constantly doing it for a greater master than the pope or the king. They were doing it for, they were doing it for the Lord, and we should be doing it the same way. So what does this mean? It's not just for work. Let's blow that out and look at all of life. We're called to everything you do in life. You're called, either called to do it or you're not called to do it. But if you're doing it, you need to be doing it for the Lord. So that means that in marriage, when I'm serving Olivia, I, yeah, I'm serving Olivia, but I'm really serving Christ. It's, it's a much greater motivation, although I am motivated to serve Olivia. Uh, when I'm serving my children, I serve my children, yes, but I, it's not primarily about Jordan, Josh, Camille, and Claire. It's about the Lord. It's about me glorifying the Lord through parenting my children. Think about work. Yeah, it's, it's, about, it's about doing a good job, but it's about more than your direct report. It's about the Lord. Think about the church. Yeah, when you serve the church, when you're doing that service, I hope you're not doing it for me. Uh, you're not necessarily doing it for other people. You, you need to be doing it for the Lord primarily, that he's the one that you ultimately are responsible to. When you manage your money, yeah, you need to make good, faithful, responsible decisions. We should all be thinking about how to do that, but primarily that money that is given to you it's not about you, and it's not about your wife or your husband. It's not about your children. It's not about your retirement. It's not about vacation. It's about the Lord. It's about the Lord. How do I steward this money? Because the Lord has given it to me. Same thing for us as a church. How do we steward this money? It's not about all of our little programs and ministries. It's about the extension of charity so eloquently said. It's not the great uh, suggestion. It's the great commission. So let's get real here for just a second. How many of us are always serving the Lord and serving in our areas of vocation like Raphael and Michelangelo? Hmm. Uh, not me. And so what do we do when we find ourselves not serving out of joy, but out of, um, out of just a lack of joy, out of being begrudgingly? I mean, oftentimes we can find ourselves with an embittered spirit, even an entitled spirit. We feel like we deserve more than than what we've been given. So what do we do when we find ourselves in that place where really our response to grace is not gracious? Our response to God's love and faithfulness to us is not uh, generous. So what do we do? Well, we need to stop in that moment. And the fact that if you can just recognize when you're there, it's just absolutely huge. 
that that's not how we're called to live. You need to stop. And you need to pray. You need to go for the Lord and say, man, there's something up. Like, I'm thinking, wait, that question, what about me, is going on way too much in my heart right now. What about me and all this? Man, that's a question that we all ask ourselves a lot. What about me? Does anybody see me? Me, 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 me. You know, we need to stop. And we need to say, Lord, it's about you. I know it's supposed to be about you. Would you reorient my heart? And the most beautiful thing about serving this new master is when we see ourselves in whatever sin is going on in our hearts, when we just bring that to him and confess that, he is faithful to forgive our sins and he will cleanse us from unrighteousness. He will give us a new heart. But we're not called to live out of, out of an embittered heart. And if you're the kind of person that if you're bitter and in your bitterness, the only way you know how to deal with that is just to talk to other people all the time about how frustrated you are about everything, that's not helpful, okay? You need to take all those words and you need to bring them to the Lord and let him quiet your soul in his grace. So serving a new master changes the way that we work. And finally, this is such good news right here. I love this, this final point. Serving a new master takes the pressure off of us in life. Serving a new master takes the pressure off of us in life. I thought Chris Cooper did such a great job last week preaching. And one of the things that he said is we're so busy cleaning up our lives when it is Jesus who makes us clean. And Jesus does make us clean. And so I want us, in this final point as we start out, I want us to remember who, who is your master? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He had everything. He came for you, and he lived a perfect life, and he died on the cross to forgive your sins, and he was raised to newness of life so that you could have new life. Jesus Christ loves you. The one who is your Lord is also your lover. He loves you. And he, as he leads us, it is good news. Sometimes it's challenging news. Maybe it's like a child who's been recently adopted. And though it's really good news that you got adopted, it's also really hard. Because you're having to learn a new way of life. You're having to learn a new family. You're having to learn to trust your parents. And it's hard to be adopted. It's also beautiful and redemptive to be adopted. And that's all of us as we learn to serve a new master, a father who loves us. So the first point is this. If Jesus is your master, then your master is not yourself. Your master is not yourself. And that means that the master of self, what is that like? He has or she has expectations about grades, work, sports, relationships, money management, marriage, parenting. And many of those expectations and desires and to-do lists and goals are not from the Lord. Many of those things just flow out of your own perfectionism and your desire to have everything just right. And I'm telling you that one of the greatest things about following Jesus is that you are no longer your master. Now he's your master. He frees you to have different standards. He, he frees you to follow him. And, and if that means your grades change a little bit, if that means that you make different decisions about life, and if that means, whatever it means, it means that you're free in him, that you're not, you're not governed by your own incredibly difficult expectations you have on yourself. Your perfectionism, drivenness, shame, guilt, despair are no longer your master. Your, your past is no longer your master your present is no longer your master. Your future is no longer your master. Jesus is your master. And then secondly, if Jesus is your master, then your master is not any other person or combination of persons. 
I think it's great to hear in Ephesians 6 that the word people pleasers are actually, it's actually in the Bible in the ESV. I've never actually noticed that before the ESV translates it that way. People pleasers, man. There's a lot of us in here, you know, including me. I mean, it could be one person who just seems to dominate your whole, like, psychology, or it could be a whole, like, group of people that you've amassed in your mind and you've given them a special right to tell you what you're supposed to do in life and who you really are. And I'm telling you, that gets to end when you have a new master. No one is your ultimate authority except for Jesus Christ. So that person or group of people that have just owned you and you've tried to live up to their expectations, you're you're concerned about whether or not they deem you a success or failure. Their opinions matter so much. Whether they praise you or don't praise you, whether they're frustrated with you or they approve of you, those, those relationships need to take a back seat to what Jesus Christ says about you if you have a new master. You don't have to be a people pleaser anymore. And then finally, if Jesus is your master, your master is not pressure-filled, changing cultural standards. Your master is not changing cultural standards. Let me go into this. Now, our culture tells us right now, kind of all of a sudden in the last, like, 10 years, your identity is not given to you. You need to create an identity for yourself. Um, How do you create your own identity? Well, you need to look deeply into your sexuality, gender, race, academic ability, money, performance, body, image, And these things, if you can just get in touch with yourself and kind of tap into all of these things, those things will determine who you really are. So by being true to yourself, you can figure out who you really are, whatever that means. But remember, you can be anyone that you want to be as long as you try hard enough and set your mind to it, but it's really up to you. One caveat, though, from our culture, while you are working to make up your own identity, which means more than anything in the world, here's a couple of things that you're warned against. Don't listen to your religion. Don't listen to God in that process because God's outdated. And also, you can listen to your parents, but only if they give you the freedom to be whatever it is that you want them to be. So in your ultimate quest to figure out who you are, based on all these desires and feelings you have when you're like between the ages of 10 and 17, do it. I mean, it's really important, but don't listen to God and don't listen to your parents. Man, that's not good. And I'm telling you that the Lord frees us from all of this nonsense, this incoherent craziness that is going on right now in our culture. God frees us. How does he do that? God gives you your identity. He gives you an identity. He says, you're my child. I love you. You're my son, you're my daughter, you're beautiful, you're created in my image, you have tremendous potential, I have a plan for you, you should walk in it, I know what's best for you, you need to live your life following me and you will become the person that I've created you to be. And as you're recreated and given grace, you will will blossom and flourish, but you have to follow the Lord in this, he is your new master And it is such a beautiful thing in this world. Let me tell you, there's a lot of pressure right now on young people in this country. They're hearing a lot of really um, disconcerting, incoherent um, phrases and catchphrases that come that don't all tie together very well. And um, 
And the key is that you're given your identity. You don't have to make it up for yourself. How much pressure is that on a young person to have to figure that out right now? But in Jesus Christ, we have a strong identity given to us by God, by his grace, and we get to learn what it means to be his child. I'll close with this. I realize we've said a lot here today. So Jesus views you. How does he view you? He views you as a son or a daughter. He views you as a person, a person created in his image. We talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means he treats you like a person. He knows you. He loves you. He died for you. He was raised for you. And you can have a relationship with him. If you've never had a relationship, you've never come to a point where you've said, I want Jesus to be my new master and received him as your Lord and as your Savior, you have an opportunity to do that. Because he's so kind and so good. He cares so much about the image of God that he's created. He cares so much about those people, you who he has died for. He cares about you so you can submit your life to him and follow his leadership. You don't have to make up an identity. You don't have to figure out how somehow racial equality is going to happen if we change everything in the world. No, you can just actually trust Christ and live through him, and he can enable the church to move forward much better than we have in the past in that area. But if you are and you have embraced Jesus as your new master, my question is, are you following him right now? Are you seeking to live in line with creation and redemption when it relates to racial and ethnic equality? Are you treating people like brothers and sisters in the church and not like potential voters, not like members of a political party? Are you following Christ with all your heart and your work in your areas of calling and home, relationships, finances? Are you responding to Jesus as your new master who takes the pressure off of you by dethroning you, other people, and cultural standards as rival masters? Are you allowing Christ to tell you who you are? Or are you desperately trying to figure that out all the time? If you will submit your life to Jesus Christ as that adopted child, it's a, it's a, it's a challenge to learn how to live under his, his leadership and lordship sometimes. But I'm telling you, the goal of Jesus Christ is, as Erwin N. said, it is the healing of a fractured humanity, your humanity and our humanity. That is his goal. That is his leadership. That is his love. And we get to follow him. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful that we have you as a master. I know myself, I've tried to be my own master, and it, it just doesn't work out. I've, I've, I've let other people boss me around and I've got a, a whole group of people that I give too much sway and I, I get confused at times by the conversations that are going on in our culture and Lord I'm so grateful that you're a refuge for us that you tell us who we are Lord God we need to be told because in this world we're told all kinds of craziness and we need to believe it Lord I pray today for anyone who's not ever um, come to you and just said, Lord, I need your grace. I need you to lead me. I pray that they would know the joy of what it looks like to be redeemed and, and led by you, a kind master. And I pray also for anyone here today who's seriously endeavoring to follow Christ. Lord, would you empower us and enable us to listen to your voice, to care more about what you say about us than any other thing. Lord God, we 
love you and we're so grateful that you died for us and you were raised for us so that you could lead us forward. We pray in Jesus' name.